Hi there, I'm Tash. And I'm Damo. And we are so excited to bring you this week's episode of The, the Barry, Barry Chronicles. Chronicles. Today we are talking with Dr. Sally Ng, who is a specialist plastic surgeon. How amazing is that? Very, very exciting. Yes. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Sally. So we're here with Dr. Sally Ng. I hope I've got that right. Um, Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sally. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. It is. Yeah. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your journey to becoming a plastic surgeon? Yeah, so um, this is uh, my eighth year since I obtained my fellowship, um, you know, as a, a fully qualified um, plastic reconstructive surgeon. So I've always had an interest in um, plastic surgery since I was um, quite early on in medical school. And I think it's um, quite a long journey to really get to this point. I mean, most of us would have had to finish medical school and then we have to do quite a number of years of postgraduate training. Then we have to apply into the plastic surgery program um, and you know, go for another a couple of years of training um, before we can become fully qualified plastic surgeons. So yeah, it's been um, it's been quite a long journey actually. But I'm um, glad that we all make it in there. And most of us would have um, you know done some additional fellowship training. I've certainly um, yeah. you know, travelled to a few places and um, observed from you know, some of the people from um, other parts of the world in terms of how we do this surgery. So you know this is where I am at the moment. <laughs> That's excellent. That's amazing. Um, you've worked so hard to get there and, and I just really admire that. Yeah, um, me too. So a- as you know, we, we run a support group for people that have had weight loss surgery um, and plastics is something that comes up so often. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the big questions that we get asked is, when can I start looking at having plastic surgery? Um, mm-hmm. What, what would you say to someone that was just sort of going down that path and and looking at getting some plastics done? Mm. Well, I think, um, yeah, it's only... Um having a body contouring surgery, especially in the setting of massive weight loss, is a very rewarding sort of, you know, aspect of, um, you know, my job. I mean, you know, certainly look after patients who really had to put in the hard work, you know, through dieting, through, you know, maybe some medical surgical intervention and, you know, get to that point. And I think, you know, there was obviously, you know, a component of improving the aesthetics of the body, but also a lot of time is really just um, helping them from a functional perspective as well so that they can, Absolutely. you know, have a more normal life after the um you know some of these um, weight loss journey and there's no um an exact sort of time point of you know when you can intervene but you know at the very minimum um we really need them to uh get to you know a stable weight for at least six months and often you know when we determine that stable weight i think you know maybe specifically referring to patient who had um bariatric uh, surgery intervention for example or like that will be very much guided by their um you know, bariatric surgeon so you know i do work very closely with uh, some of my colleagues who look after the um, bariatric side of things and they will often tell me okay look I really think patient has reached a stable phase and they don't think they're unlikely to drop any further and we want to make sure that weight is at least stable for six months and then we can you know start having that conversation and have the discussion um, obviously there are other patients who may not have necessarily involved a bariatric surgery and they might just be through dieting or through other um, you know using Ozempic or Syndexa or the other um, of the medications yeah. um, so those patients we might be looking at the overall percentage of the weight loss. So we really wanted to, um, at that point, probably look at the changes in the BMI. Um, So as you know, I mean, the BMI 
you know, will sequentially sort of drop over, you know, the various point of the intervention. And I mean, often um, it might be involved their GP or their endocrinologist who might be prescribing those medications. So again, it's very important yeah. for me to have a conversation with the specialist or the GP involved with that care to see if um, they have reached a stable um, weight. Uh, but I think, yeah. um, you know, certainly, you know, there are some sort of, I guess, a general concept that okay you need to be at a bmi of certain you know figures before you'll be considered yeah. um, suitable but i think for me it's a bit more about you know the absolute changes in the bmi rather than the actual number itself um certainly have to you know i think you may not like realistically ever get to say bmi 30 but you know like 35 is say maybe the absolute lowest that they will be able to get to and i think um you know that might be a time where you can yeah. say okay um, it's, it's a matter of, you know, having a discussion about the expectations um, and even if you can drop their weight, you know, by having some surgery and functionally improve their posture and they might be able to exercise a bit more and, you know, even sort of get the weight down a bit further. So I think, you know, for me, there's no absolute figures, but it's about, you know, the changes, you know, over time. And I think if they reach to a, a stable BMI, then that's probably a good time to at least have a conversation and then discuss whether they're appropriate to proceed to the next step. That's amazing because when I when I first started it does my heart good to hear that having my my <laughs> chest done yeah. I I'd gone from a about a sixty eight BMI down yeah. to a thirty and I was told oh no you need to get to a twenty five before I'm going to touch you and I was like oh my gosh I've just lost one hundred and ten kilos and you yeah. know all this and then the marker it just felt like it was moved so far away that it was unachievable mm. um you know so i really like that you you look at sort of a person as a whole person not just as a number. number yeah well i think look obviously there will be um i mean there will be i guess some like a plus surgery is quite individualized sort of thing and i think you know yes, we yes. Have different conversation with different colleagues and i think you know everyone had our own i guess set of theories and belief to some extent but certainly if you look at the trend um particularly in, say, America, like, you know, a lot of them um, are sort of, you know, happy to operate in patients in their BMI of 30s. And I think it is just a matter of having that conversation with the patient to know, okay, look, your BMI is still a bit high, but realistically, you know, you might have already had a sleeve and a bypass and you just can't get you down to any more, you know, reasonable weight. And I think you kind of have to put everything on a plate and see, okay, look, you know, yes, your wound complication might be slightly higher than, you know, someone who'd be a mile 25. But um, if you if that can help you to get you in a better sort of functional state, then I think it is worth having that conversation. And, you know, this is something that I think personally, at least like, you know, as a surgeon and a patient, you need to have that conversation to see if this is the right thing for you. Yeah. Mm, that's excellent. Mm. That's, very, that's very good. Very refreshing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very refreshing. Um, something that I I think we touched on uh, before we started the recording, mm. uh, I think it's important for, for people that are having it to understand that it may not leave us looking like the magazine model that we're, mm. you know, that we've sort of watched for years yeah. or... And, um, yeah. How do we manage our expectations? I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very um important topic. And I think look, you know, sometimes uh 
you know, I mean, for, for me anyway, I do like quite often spend, you know, quite a few hours just talking to patients just to really sort of set their realistic expectations. And, you know, what, what we're really trying to achieve is just removing any redundant um, skin fold, obviously, as a result of the weight loss. And sometimes, you know, the skin fold can happen in many different parts of the body as well. So, you know, you have to having the first thing is really just asking the patient, okay, what, what is the area that really bothers you the most? Um, and, you know, like we, we then sort of get them, I get them to like generally fill out a questionnaire to, you know, prioritise their different areas. So they're basically different, you know, questions looking at, okay, are you um, are you having functional issues? Are you just sort of disappointed about the appearance? And then so, you know, I think by helping them to rank all the different areas and what they're mostly concerned about, that kind of helps to put them into a bit of perspective about, you know, what they really want to be. Because, you know, you can have someone who come in telling me that, okay, well, this is the area that I don't like. And, you know, I can look at them and say, well, these are the areas that I think I can improve. But if you don't match up with that expectation, this is when I think, you know, we're going to have an unhappy patient. So I think, um, you know, listening is it's quite important to begin with. But also, um, you know, the, the main thing is understanding that, okay, look, you know, um, especially if your BMI was say a bit high, like, you know, you, you may not get that full deflation. So sometimes you're really just removing that skin fold that you've got, but you may still have some, you know, underlying, um, you know, fatty tissue that we couldn't fully remove. And I think it's quite important for people to understand that liposuction really isn't like a good option for, you know, weight loss patient in particular, because your skin just don't really retract the same way. So I think I always say to patient, look, you know, if you're worried about scars, then, you know, this is not something for you, because unfortunately, the surgery will leave scars. Um, and I think, you know, for them to understand that, okay, look, this is really trying to remove the skin for rather than, you know, kind of making the skin a bit flatter like that that is the result of the weight loss but you know like the the whole body contouring surgery is about lifting the skin removing excess skin um and i think you know having that sort of concept you know discussed early on and you know letting them know that the scars will be there is quite important um and then after and quite a lot of time i think just looking at it in the mirror in terms of telling them exactly where the scar sort of sits and um, sometimes we'll, you know, take some photos and sort of draw out where it is as well. And I think, you know, let them go home and have a think about whether this is a scar that they're happy to accept. Like obviously some of the scars are quite well hidden, um, you know, tummies and, you know, the back, uh, breasts are usually, you know, hidden enough, but things like, you know, the thigh and, you know, the arms in particular can be quite obvious as well. So I think they're the things that um, it's quite important to set the expectation early that, okay, this is not going to be a scarless sort of surgery. People will see it, but, you know, this is to help you to wear your, you know, short sleeves a, a bit better or the longer sleeves better even, or, you know, removing that sort of sagging. And, you know, so I think those things are, uh, probably, you know, important consideration and discussion early in the consultation. But I think I've been quite fortunate, you know, that um, most of the patient, you know, after spending a couple of hours, you know, really discussing it, you know, they do actually, I guess, understand the process and, you know, haven't touched wood, haven't had a very unhappy patient coming in. <laughs> yeah, this is where, you know, we really need to um, just sort of match up that, um, you know, uh, expectation early on, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that it's a very very important conversation to have. I I probably went into my first plastics with un or well, I definitely did go in with unrealistic expectations. I I had imagined my head on a body that was not ever going to look like mm. mine was able to look. Mm. And um and it it was it was difficult uh for me to to come to accept the reality of my skin, but I'm completely fine with it now. And, you know, my, my surgeon was great. Um, but 
it, it was definitely a me thing. It was a me problem, <laughs> not mm. certainly not, um, yeah, not anything else. And it was it was tough mm. because I think as bariatric people, um, we spend so long in bigger bodies that we just really want them to look different. Mm. And with, with all of that loose and redundant skin, it um, my body morphed into another thing that I just <laughs> didn't really recognize mm. so it's good that it's good that that um that you've got such an awareness of that it really yeah. is i think it's very difficult because obviously you know like at the end of the day you know like you, you guys have done a lot of hard work getting to that way and you really want to be rewarded and so you know i think that's actually you know very very hard sometimes and i think you know look you you, you can sort of talk about a lot of these things but without actually um I mean, you know, visualizing that sort of, you know, outcome is also hard to sometimes make that expectations as well. Like, I mean, I think sometimes having some photos kind of helps. Like, I mean, I do occasionally show patients some photos just to maybe assist with that, yeah. I guess, you know, um, process. And, um, but I mean, you know, I, I also, you know, a bit cautious about, you know, certainly some photos, you know, giving the false expectation as well. But, you know, like, I think this is where, you know, a couple of the consultation before the final surgery kind of helps because then, you know, like, I mean, the main thing is, you know, I never want patients to rush into the surgery. Like, you know, you get to this point, you know, I just want you to really take the time, think about it. And, you know, like when you feel like you're really ready, then I think this is, you know, a good time. And I mean, you know, whoever you're seeing, you need to feel comfortable with the surgeon as well. I think that's really quite important. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, like, I think, you know, you both have to feel comfortable with each other because, you know, often you might be doing more procedure than just a one procedure. So I do encourage, yeah. you know, if, you know, a patient want to see a couple of different surgeons until they find a person that they sort of gel with, I think that's actually very reasonable because you are trusting them with a big surgery. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I think that's great because I, I think for a lot of our members, um, it almost feels like they're, betraying the first surgeon if they go to anyone else mm. and you know it's like no that's not how the surgeons are feeling they you know um yeah you know but, no, i think you know look yeah. is uh, obviously like i think you know from from our perspective look you know like i think if i if i see someone and i hope that they feel comfortable with me and then they will you know like follow through the surgery but i think it, yeah. it's a very neutral thing right like i think if you come in to see someone for some reason you're just not comfortable then i think it's better to pull a pin and say okay go and see someone else and see how yeah. you feel like because you know at the end of the day like i think there are many reasons that you know that you you like certain person right you have to feel yeah. you a certain right. person. and i think it's quite important that you know, you do, you do your research and I mean, look, you know, you can go online and read a lot of reviews, but it's about how you feel about that person. So, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, like encourage people to, you know, if you need to just see one or two people, you don't need to see like 10 surgeons, I think, but, you know, like just get an opinion, make sure you're comfortable with this decision because sometimes um, I think we might give you slightly different opinion as well, depending on what we think or what our experiences is. So, you know, like I, I think, yeah, right. you know, getting a second opinion is not a bad don't feel like you couldn't do that <laughs> yeah yeah so when when it comes to preparing for surgery mm. um is there is there things that um that bariatric patients or i suppose just patients in general should bear in mind in terms of um how how their blood tests should be prior should they be 
mm. prioritizing taking their vitamins what are the what are the things that you're looking for and checking uh, to mm. make sure that they're healthy enough and well enough to be able to have the surgery mm. so look from my um, point of view and again i guess this is you know probably mainly my opinion on some of these things but um now, we'll obviously take a pretty extensive medical history when um, the patient comes to see me. So number one is really making sure that, um, you know, their metabolic status is good. So often, you know, the bariatric surgeon will still, you know, check their blood tests, especially if they had, um, you know, gastric surgery or bypasses or your, you know, iron B12 folate, all that kind of, you know, micronutrient needs to be quite optimal. Um, we also look at, you know, some of the other, you know, common medical conditions that may be associated with people who had a history of weight loss, like, you know, some of them might have, um, you know diabetes or you know blood pressure problems or you know heart issues um so i think they need to be quite well addressed and also there may be situations where their history with obstructive sleep apnea as well like again you want to make sure that you, you know they've had that attended to or whether they're still using cpap that type of thing um i think the other main thing for me is um you know obviously uh anything to do with wound healing so you know like there's a history of diabetes that also need to be quite well controlled so we often look at the hba1c level um for me like i definitely um do not uh sort of like to offer surgery with patients who still smoke um because i think you know this is a very elective surgery and it's very hard because i think you know smoking quite often is a bit of a stress-induced kind of you know issues and there's a lot of behavioral sort of you know issues attached to that as well but i'm um, trying to get people to come off this cigarette is not always the easiest but i think you know for me this is the biggest factor that i can reverse to make sure that you know there's no complications or at least minimize the complication to the absolute lowest so i always had to um, tell my patient that if they smoke then i'll get them to you know look at ways to work with their gp to quit before they um you know consider surgery and again like this is elective surgery so i think you know it's really important that we do things as best as we can yeah. to try and minimize the risk and i think most of my colleagues um around town will also sort of had a pretty similar theory around that um and I think, you know, the final thing really is just uh, any other, you know, potential surgical history in the past associated with anesthetic, like if they had any, um, you know, issues with, um, you know, clottings or, you know, like any major anesthetic reaction, like we need to sort of look into that before we, you know, talk about the next step of surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm. that's excellent. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I love mm. it. That was something that, that has come up, um, that... There are times where people need, like Tash had multiple tummy tucks. Um, mm. Even though they're at their goal weight, it just yeah. seems like their skin just keeps melting. Um, keeps sagging. Keeps sagging. Mm. Is there a reason for that or is it just genetics? Um Mm. In terms of like the um, like the the weight hasn't achieved like a stable weight, or you mean like the, the weight's no, still... like the, the the weight's stable, but they have the tummy tuck, and then within a few weeks, it sort of seems like it's stretched back mm. almost okay. as much as yeah um, mm. before. Do you see that very often? Um, look, I, I think. Now, again, I, I guess I, I'm just giving like a fairly general response, but the reality is that, um, you know, when in body sort of contouring surgery, like um, unfortunately the skin quality is quite different to say, you know, someone who, um, you know, just I guess had more like a tummy tuck post, say, you know, post-pregnancy post or something. So um, yeah. quite often, like when, you know, certainly when I was doing the surgery, like I do need to put quite a lot of suspension sutures to try and, you know, anchor it to some deeper sort of structure to 
I guess, you know, as much as possible, try to hold the tissue, if that makes sense. Like, I think, unfortunately, because, you know, it had been through that, you know, the stretching um, from the weight loss. So the, the skin just don't contract, you know, the way it is, which is why things like liposuction will never really sort of work alone because, you know, the skin yeah. just don't behave the same. Um, and I think, look, you know, certainly, um, you know, I, I I suppose, you know, like there, there are situations where probably in the tummy, like you can still see that, like when you sort of, you know, do the initial tummy tuck and you did give a bit of a lift stay on the mons, but then, you know, after a while, like that mons sort of sags again. And that's often because, you know, you, you're trying to really address that sort of more upper component of the of the tummy and you haven't really quite done enough, you know, to the mons. And so often people will come back, you know, say to have a bit more of a lift, you know, in that mons area. So that's probably like a reasonably common scenario. Um, and the other thing I think is, um, you know, if you actually have that upper kind of like an upper tummy roll and, you know, you're really more just having like a lower abdominal plasty, then, um, you know, you might notice some sagging in the upper roll, but that's really more, you know, from the back. So I think this is just like a very generic, it's just a general sort of, you know, description. But you yeah, yeah area that seems a little bit more exaggerated, but I think that was probably because, you know, like it is actually a separate area to begin with, like, and maybe, you know, we just haven't quite, I guess, analysed that overall. Um, you know, remember when we talked about in the beginning, like you really got to sort of sit down and yeah. say which area is the sagging skin and um, say to expect that, you know, like if we just do a tummy tuck and, you know, be able to address that kind of flank sort of excess skin, then that's probably not really going to work and you'll always have to have a separate procedure for that. So I think that's probably what... Um, what really happens um but like obviously i think um in terms of you know whether there's more sort of skin developed um after an initial surgery so unless you know because i have patients who ask me and say oh what if i lost more weight you know so if i had someone who operated at bmi 35 and then you know they managed to lose more weight like i think really unless you lose another good you know five or ten bmi you're probably not really going to see a major changes you know in in the result yeah. you shouldn't yeah. really expect that um but yeah. Yeah, it's always very tricky because the skin quality is just not the same. And it depends on what your initial weight loss is. Like if you lost, you yeah. know, 50 BMI, you know, as opposed to 20 BMI, that skin quality will also be quite different. So I think, again, like quite individual, but, you know, hopefully that kind of answers the questions. Yeah. yeah. No, that does. That that really does. Because I think particularly in our group when, when we have people that, that lose such differing amounts of weight and they mm. see so many... Um, different photos of mm. of people that that may have had you know quite high starting BMI, and mm. then um, it's it's quite easy to become afraid. You know, mm. oh well, well, maybe I'll need three or four surgeries to you know have my skin looking. But I, I think what you said is is perfect, and it explains it. And yeah, um, you know that that's that's why BMI is actually um, important. important as an indicator. Um, mm. We've there. There is a lot of a lot of discussion around BMI within the bariatric community and whether it's relevant anymore. Um, and I can un, I can see and understand why it would be in this type of situation with plastics, um, pu purely from the skin yeah. quality yeah. perspective. Yeah, I think so I mean it's interesting about the BMI concept because I mean, like you said, there are some sort of theory to believe that well, actually, you can't always just look at the BMI and you know assess a lot of, because like I think you know you can really have someone who drop so much you know as opposed to so little. But I think it is sort of relevant in a sense that um as you know in the um 
in the sort of um, the, the Medicare guidelines, like for example, you actually need to lose you know, five BMI, and that was still the definition. So yeah. I guess it is it is yeah. relevant, you know, to to certain extent. And I think you know, just having that number, I suppose, give you a bit of a idea of what the changes from your um, you know your goal weight is. So I suppose it's just you know probably more as a trend, which is why like to me, it's actually more important to look at the changes rather than the absolute figure. Uh, yeah. And I think you know the like figure is not more like again like historically when we look at a lot of the research um study out there when we look at wound complications and all that you know they also use bmi as a as an indicator to to measure that so i think there's many reasons why people still talk about bmi and you know still look at that but mm-hmm. but really at the end of the day i think you really have to focus on who's sitting in front of you and yeah. you know, sort of go yeah. from there yeah yeah so it, i mean it really still is patient-centered um mm. and what's best for them it's just different ways of looking at what's mm. going to be best. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Now, something that I always have a little bit of a chuckle about when when the question comes up because, um, well, I know I actually did try. So are there any creams that can magically make our excess skin disappear? Well, unfortunately, um, not really. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish there is such product available. But look, I think um, people talk about stretch mark and, and all that as well. And I think, um, well, one of the things that I tell patients is that, well, the surgery won't get rid of your stretch mark, that's for sure. Like, I think that's quite important to to understand that because people think, oh, well, if, by tightening the skin, will that actually get rid of it? Well, it may temporarily improve it, but it won't um, really dissipate it because the stretch mark is really to do with, you know, the changes in the collagen, you know, on our skin. So... Yeah. I think um, that's quite important to understand. And I mean, look, you know, we're still learning about, you know, the, the structural level of how the skin changes. I think, you know, with the changes in the weight. Um, so, you know, I think maybe one day, I mean, you know, people do talk about, you know, some of the non-invasive things with like, you know, skin tightening, you know, type kind of treatment, but really in the setting of, you know, massive weight loss, like it is it is quite a different skin that we're talking about. So um, oh, yeah. I would encourage patients to look down their pathway and, you know, I think, so, oh, you know, if someone show you a really good photo online, you've got to sort of be a bit sceptical about it um, because, you know, I think yeah. unfortunately, you know, the skin is just not the same. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, I totally agree. My skin's very crepey mm. and even though I would love to be able to rub something on it, and mm. it'd be fine. I know mm. that that will not happen. Mm. Oh, sad, <laughs> <Unfortunately>. <laughs> well, maybe one day yeah. smart enough to be able to design something, but not in the current, <laughs> not in current climate. <laughs> not currently. Yeah. No, no turmeric for you. No, 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 no magic potions. No. So, um... Silicon is good after the surgery. Like I definitely recommend patients using silicon compression garments and things. Yeah. You know, they're they all you know. So post surgery, you can do things to at least help with your scar. So I think you know, like I always yeah. spend your time talking to patients afterwards about scar management. I think you know certainly that will help to make sure that your scar doesn't stretch out because you know some patients can get that fairly what we call hypertrophic scar as well. But I think you know in terms of just improving the skin itself without any any other intervention that's sort of not quite there yet at the moment. 
So yeah. how long do you recommend wearing um, compression garments for? Like, I, I know I know it's it's probably very individualised as well, but just as a general ballpark type of a thing after a tummy tuck, for example. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, about three months or so um, is a pretty sort of, you know, um, good figures. And there's a reason being that, you know, really your wound doesn't reach um, enough what we call tensile strength up until around about three months or so. So you're really doing that, number one, to support the wound. And number two, really just to encourage any, you know, post-operative fluid to, um, you know, I guess a kind of, encourage the drainage of those um fluid so it is tricky because you know obviously in um, australia weather like certain time of the year you know you may not really feel like you want to wear a compression garment all the time so you know i do yeah. find that, um you know probably the the winter season is the popular season you know for people who want to consider this type of surgery that's but, when i did it yeah, good that's when yeah yeah that was when that was when i did it and i i lived in my garments for well, I lived in them for longer than three months. I wore them for about six months yeah. Um, yeah. Ju- just because it made me feel better. It mm. just made it all feel like it was sitting nicely. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. yeah. I had and surgical yeah. tape on yeah. over Christmas and it yeah. was horrible. Oh, that would have been horrible. Yeah, yeah it can be quite hard. But I mean, look, you know, the um, the tummy in particular, because often, um, you know, because of the weight loss, there will be some separation of the rectus muscle as well. So, you know, your six-pack muscle. So, I yes. mean, I will often repair that muscle as well. So people find that with the compression, and you don't always have to wear that full binder, but at least, you know, like you can wear some kind of shapewear or some form of support so that, you know, you're actually helping the posture as well. Because, like, you might be used to a certain sort of poor posture before, and now you yeah. have this and that actually help you to learn to oh actually i've got to stand a bit straighter and so that sort of thing also really helps um so it's not just you know simple scarfing or fluid thing but also yeah. you know improving that posture is actually quite important yeah that's yeah. good wow so for for the guys um yeah. man boobs gynecomastia whatever we want to call it um yeah that's it's affecting a lot of men um you know and and i guess we see it a lot more these days people guys talk about it a little bit more especially Mm. in the men's chats and stuff um Mm. you know what can be done for us guys that are sick of our boobs yeah so I think, um, look, again, like, I mean, if we, you can sort of look at gynecomastia more in the isolation setting or in the setting of a you know, weight loss. Um, but, you know, again, like if we were talking about in the weight loss setting, which obviously what we focus on today, like a lot of the time is to do with the skin deflation. So I think breast is quite straightforward. If you think about, and this, this is kind of like, male female breast really when you analyze a breast you're looking at you know whether you want to adjust the volume whether you want to adjust the skin and i mean anything you know in a weight loss setting you know it's often to do with the skin deflation so unfortunately you know the way to address this is not to you know again use liposuction but to really um address the, the skin excess um i think in guys it's a little bit more tricky because you know, in, in ladies, you know, where you might do a mestopexy or something, you know, you, you do have some folds to hide the scar. So, for example, you'll hide the scar underneath the breast and, you know, you've got a scar around the nipple and coming down often, you know, like what we call the inverted T scar. Um, in guys, like, you know, sometimes they might want to wear, you know, um, go topless, you know, in the beach and, you know, like, but you, you will see those scars a bit more visible. But I think, you know, in the setting of weight loss, you really couldn't um, avoid those scars, unfortunately. So, you know, one of the first things that I would talk to patients about, you know, especially in, in the, in the 
Mev's setting is that, well, you know, that scar will be quite visible. But, you know, some of them might say, well, I just wanted to get the contour right and I'm going to wear a T-shirt and they're happy and that's fine. But, you know, certainly I have patients who come in and tell me they don't want scars. They just want to address that. And I say, well, unfortunately, I won't be able to, you know, help you with that. So I think just understanding the difference between the male and female sort of setting is, is quite important. And then uh, often it will just involve redraping, you know, the skin and then, you know, reposition the, the nipple sort of position as well. Um, but I think, you know, look, um, it, like, I mean, guys get great results, you know, after, you know, gynecomastia surgery. And I think, you know, like you said, probably maybe they're a bit more um, shy to talk about these things. Um, but certainly I'm seeing more and more um, males of seeking that type of surgery as well. And um, so I think certainly it's, um, it's on, the, on the rise, I think maybe because there's more awareness mm-hmm. of it and they know that there's something that can be done about it as long as you understand mm-hmm. that, you know, there will be a scar involved. And I think certainly you know, you can, can consider that if it's indicated, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. And, and you, you make, because this, this is something that I've been asked by, by numerous um, guys, mm. and, and I know Damo has as well, uh, mm. is can, can the nipples be made smaller? And yes, yes, they can, can't they? Yeah, they can. And often, um, you know, when we do, um, I mean, again, like same in female male breasts, like, you know, because of the of the way it's been enlarged, you know, over time, like, you know, that areola um, area will be quite stretched. Like we don't do anything to the nipple per se, unless you specifically yeah. want to reduce the height of the nipple, but certainly yeah. um, we'll actually reduce the areola area. So for example, in um, female breasts, traditionally that will be down to, you know, like 40 um, millimeters or, you know, 42, 45, like kind of a bit of a dependent on, you know, the, the discussion with the patient. Um, and then, you know, for male, it will be down to around about sort of usually is, you know, aesthetically good looking, you know, areola will be around about, you know, like an oval shape. So, you know, like we, we, we will sort of, you know, make them a bit smaller just so that it's, you know, what is aesthetically pleasing, you know, at least on definition anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, it. it is. It is good so, to know that. It gives me a bit of hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've, you've lived with gynecomastia for a long, long time, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, since I was like 12 yeah. um, it started. Um, and I was always told, oh, if you lose weight, it'll go away. And, um, you know, it just Yeah, I mean, I think that's elements of it as well like i mean we like if i see someone it just this is just generally talking about gynecomastia then yeah. you know i often um will try to work out whether you know how much of that is actually um you know glandular tissue like actually breast tissue how much of that is actually you know like fatty tissue and then you try to work out the proportion because sometimes um you know, you can actually see, I, I often sort of involve one of my endocrinologists because there are specific hormonal causes that can actually drive the, you know, the growth of the gynecomastia. And for me, it's quite important to make that differentiation because sometimes we might just put patients on tamoxifen initially just to see if they get good result. But obviously this is not quite in the setting of yeah. massive weight loss. If it's like tend to be just massive weight loss and, you know, had a lot of loose skin, then that's a totally separate sort of issue. But whereas like if it is more... And like a general gynecomastia, then it's important to make the differentiation because, you know, sometimes we may actually try that medical pathway before we consider surgery as well. So, mm. yeah, that's, yeah, definitely. That's good for people to know too. Yeah. Yeah, because if you can do it without a surgical intervention, then that's even yeah. better. Yeah, then all the better. Yeah, all the better. Yeah. Um, when it, uh, another question that, um, that comes up quite a bit is to do with, I suppose it would be a healing thing, but nerve pain and things after after weight loss and you know after skin removal. Mm. Um, how 
How common is it for people to experience nerve pain, particularly, I suppose, after arms? Um, mm. I know I, I had nerve pain for, for quite a while. Mm. And um, is there things that people can do to help manage that? Mm. That's a question well, that... Yeah, unfortunately, with, um, you know, any of the skin-related surgery, because there's a lot of sensory nerve, you know, like um, in, in all parts. So, you know, one of the key things that I do emphasise to my patient is that you'll definitely feel numb in that area. Now, obviously, there's a difference between just feeling numb as opposed to having actual nerve pain. And and this is a bit that can be a little bit unpredictable because um, essentially, you know, anywhere, so for example, in a, you know, a standard tummy tuck, like quite often, you know, from that kind of, um, you know, central area down to that, you know, obviously... It's like a triangle shape almost that area do feel very numb um and you know that that can take anywhere you know up until you know like 12 to 24 months to really fully recover now i think some people do unfortunately um get actual pain as opposed to just numbness and that could be because you know there may be some little nerve ending that you know kind of because when you sort of cut through the nerve, obviously the nerve ending can, you know, leave open. And sometimes if they kind of, you know, get stuck in the scars or they might get stuck in the stitches and that's where you can get some unexpected nerve pain. Um, and I have to say, you know, it, it can be quite difficult to predict who will get that. Um, but I think the main thing is, you know, I, I generally tell the last patient, look, you know, if, if, if I suspect that, you know, there's a bit of a risk involved and I might get them to take some vitamin C, you know, um, once a day for about a good sort of six weeks at the very minimum. Like, you know, we do sort of, I mean, there's some soft signs to say that, you know, that kind of helps to, you know, modulate that kind of nerve recovery. Um, if there's any very early signs or, um, you know, some kind of nerve sounding pain like a bit more than the standard post-operative pain then i might put them on some medications such as like lyrica or you know any of the other um you know like other pentan types of medication that might help them to just i guess dampen that nerve down and also i think a lot of the touching and the massaging you know in in the wound kind of helps as well so there's a lot of sensory i guess you know re-education you know in that area that can help to dampen down that pain i think the okay. arm is particularly yeah. sensitive as well in that area because there are a couple of you know quite um sort of superficial nerves like that run very close to the skin um but again like i think we like you know we, we try to tend to do a few different things surgically to minimize that so for example like you know we you know, most of us will actually, you know, um, use a little bit of liposuction to assist the process, but, you know, we'll still excise the skin afterwards. And we think that, you know, by doing that, it, it reduces the risk of actually cutting into the nerve. So there are sort of some surgical technique that I think people try to introduce to minimize some of these, um, you know, significant mm -hmm. pain that can happen. Um, but, you know, a lot of the post-operative thing, like, you know, as I said, the vitamin C, the medication, the, you know, the constant touching and the massaging and all that will probably help to dampen that down. And I think the main thing is just having that early recognition um, um, so that you know if there was some you know significant concern and that could be addressed early on then that will generally help yeah that's, excellent. Yeah, that's great yeah. and um for our our members that do suffer from lipedema and mm. and that sort of stuff is that something that um like a, a plastic surgeon can help with or is that another sort of specialty yeah, so I think this is quite a, like, I think, unfortunately, in Australia, we're quite behind, you know, in that kind of lipedema kind of space, unfortunately, like, I think, um, you know, number one, there's not probably like a really dedicated, I think, I mean, lipedema is more like a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion sometimes, because, you know, you might have someone who come in with, with that quite classic sort of appearance of bilateral lower limb, um, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, that kind of heaviness in the lower limb that, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
tearing the ankle and also um you know sometimes you, you think well is that is that still because you know i've got more weight to lose or is this actually lymphedema or is it actually lymphedema like they're all quite sort of different um sort of you know approaches but i think these days like you know we I think certainly, you know, there are a couple of clinics, you know, across Australia that started to, I guess, introduce some of the investigation. Like, you know, we'll be looking at um, the main thing really is just ruling out um, things like um, lymphedema, which, you know, we'll often kind of do some tests to see whether the lymphatic flow is impaired or we'll do some MRI to see what well, the fat distribution versus fluid distribution. And then often, you know, we'll get them to see um, a physiotherapist to try and, you know, see if there's any um, means that they can do to try and, you know, reduce some of that comp- maybe through compression, for example, to see if that actually alters the um the clinical cause and if you know like all those things kind of you know been excluded and failed and you know lymphedema is kind of like the diagnosis of exclusion and then often you know you'll start off with um you know some sort of very um conservative management like i mean there are some targeted program that look at i guess modulating that pain because often patients present with pain like that's what you know they generally do. Yeah. Um, you know, but a lot of those focuses on that kind of sensory, you know, modulation. Um, and if that sort of doesn't really work, then I mean, sometimes you can go down a surgical pathway of doing some liposuction, you know, for patients. But at the moment, there's no specific Medicare item number that will cover it. So unfortunately, that is still covered, considered as a cosmetic sort of procedure, which is quite unfortunate because, you know, really, I think it is more medically indicated sort of, you know, reason yeah. rather than a cosmetic procedure. But that's something that I think, you know, we need a bit more lobbying maybe, you know, like in, in the country to sort of, you know, help some of the patient, you know, getting the appropriate support through. Um, but at this stage, you know, this is kind of the general workup and the pathway. And there is a, um, there is some support group online, I believe. And I mean, you, maybe, you know, you guys yeah. Sort of smaller support group within your forum as well um, that really try to, I guess, look at, you know, all those conservative pathway. And I think the main thing is most patients will get some improvement with their pain, but certainly, you know, from a, from a ultimately, you know, reducing that kind of heaviness, you know, in the legs and all that, like, yeah. you know, you may have to sort of really go down that surgical pathway. But it's quite a complex, um, you know, issues. And certainly I think, you yeah, know, absolutely. on, you know, in yeah. certain in in our community is still quite under recognized unfortunately yeah mm. well it is what it is hopefully in years to come yeah mm. yeah so what what is your favorite do, do you have a favorite procedure to perform oh look i think um it's difficult to name you know like a favorite procedure because but i mean look you know, um well, I think, yeah, generally speaking, like, you know, a lot of the patients that come and see me, like, put it this way, like, the first thing that they always want to do is a tummy. Like, I think most people, yeah. you know, always wanted to improve on the tummy. I think tummy breasts, you know, arms, they're often quite satisfying sort of procedure because you can really yeah. see the difference. Like, you know, just improve that kind of heaviness in the front and, you know, really improve that posture, you know, improving all that, you know, the rashes that often, you know, you get in between the folds. So, I mean, for me, like, you know, every patient who, you know, come in after those procedures are just so happy and quite life-changing. And I think for me, that's quite rewarding, actually. Um, I think, you know, other areas, obviously, you know, like the, the thighs and the back, they're often, you know, like good procedure as well. But, you know, like I think like most of my patients, like, you know, probably the, the tummy and the breasts are probably my favourite operation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely changed. It completely changed my life. So I understand that hmm. that it would be something that would be very rewarding for a surgeon to do as well. Yeah. Removing yeah. all that skin. 
very patient. Um, you know, I've often had a couple of people who, um, you know, like just being able to be more mobile, being a lot more active, and then, you know, yeah. sending and you know how they can just fit into their you know the favorite dress that they you know really want to fit into or clothes or whatever I think that's quite yeah. um, you know it's very happy for us to see the impact that we can make you know to the patients yeah mm. and what happens to all the skin um like that's cut away what does like, happen I, I, I asked I asked my surgeon if I could um get it and make a handbag for my wife out of it. <laughs> she did not want that that is so weird yeah I know I don't know why but there you go so oh, I actually get discarded so you know like we haven't quite got to this I mean look you know there was a period where um you know a couple of the centers were collecting them for some research purpose like at some at some point in time not at the moment that I'm aware of but um you know I mean there's still a lot of research going into you know understanding about how fat cell differentiate for example and all that so you know there are a couple of centers um in the past that would have collect them for research but at the moment like we always weigh the skin so um you know sometimes it's like you know i do make some jokes with my patients say guess how much skin i'll take off this time and we'll see how close it matches yeah. you know the expectations <laughs> but we always you know, just have some documentation but um you know apart from that yeah. you know we get discarded just like any um you know i guess uh i guess human waste sort of processing i suppose yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know that um it's definitely been asked a number of times in our support group if the skin can be donated mm. you know, to to help to help mm. in any other medical conditions and and I thought that there would um, that that would probably not not be the case yet that we wouldn't be medically advanced enough yet to to yeah. to do that. No, so, we haven't talked about the tissue banking. Like, I mean, you know, like we people might have heard about, you know, the use of cadaver skin for, like, say, burn surgery, but, you know, it is harvested in a quite a different way. So, you know, we haven't quite, again, again, like, I think it's the resource-limited kind of steps as well. We just haven't quite got that yeah. ability to do so. But um, you never know. It might be contributed to some research, you know, if the right time comes. You never know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and no handbags at the moment. No, no handbags either. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. so wait. Mm. Um, now a couple of questions that we ask everyone that comes on our podcast mm. first one if you could choose a superpower mm. besides being an amazing plastic surgeon what would it be <laughs> oh that's a really hard question i haven't thought about that but <laughs> Well, I think if I can do something, I will uh, somehow want all my surgery to be scarless and I think I'll have much happier patient. That could be my superpower. Yeah, I love that. Yep. I love it. Well, I love we, it. Might be, yep. we might be close to that one day, but at the moment, um, if I can wave a wand and all this scar goes away, that will be, that will be my, you know, yep. happiest moment, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Still so patient-centred. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Um, your favourite thing to do in your downtime? Ah. Oh. I would be maybe sleeping. <laughs> no, actually, I um, I think I um really enjoy um well, you know, if I had the opportunity to really um just go travel the world and really see the rest of the world, I think that would be um that would be quite amazing. I think there's still a long list of bucket lists that I want to keep ticking off, you know, as I go, especially in some of the more remote areas. So um, yeah, if I if I had downtime, like a significant downtime, I love to you know keep traveling and just keep seeing uh, other cultures and experience the world. Mm. Yep, I love that amazing. too. Amazing. Mm. And last one. What is your favorite meal? 
Favourite, sorry, missed your that one. Your favourite dish, your favourite food. food to eat. Oh, my favourite food. Wow, okay, that's also a very hard question because I'm quite a, I'm not very picky with my food actually. <laughs> but um, maybe like a good, um, I don't know, maybe a good sort of sushi dish or something. Like, you know, that's a light yeah. enough, not too heavy. I feel like uh, that's a good yeah. sort of so you know i'm heading to japan in a few weeks so uh, that's definitely on my top list having some good sushi <laughs> uh, yep yeah. me too i love that my, my wife and i it's uh my birthday today and we're going into melbourne tomorrow for a couple of days and um we're going to hit up a um a nice japanese restaurant, restaurant somewhere so so that's right. going to be fun Oh, yeah. I mean, a good, um, you know, sushi is always uh, nice, you know, healthy enough that, you know, I don't feel too guilty if I had a bit more, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, oh, no. It's It's been such a pleasure to chat. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah. 